Father, I, I pray that even in the things that we've considered this morning and the, and the songs that we've sung, that, that our hearts have, have swelled with a sense of joy, a sense of exultation. What a marvelous work you have done. From the very beginning, you made it clear that your intent was to inhabit your creation, to be all in all. And to have your glory fill the earth through the human creatures that are your image and likeness. Even as the psalmist said in Psalm 8, you crowned man with glory and honor. You put him over the works of your hands. Your design was that your own glory would be manifest in the world in human beings. And what a tragedy that human rebellion, human autonomy, a sense of self that sets you aside has marred that image and has covered the glory that is your human creature. And yet, Father, you would not let go of your eternal plan. You would not let go of the very reason for which you brought the creation into existence. You would flood it with your glory and with the knowledge of you as the waters cover the seas. And so you called out a people to yourself to dwell in the midst of them, that they would bear that light of your glory in a way that would cause the world to know the creator God, the God who is, that you would end the exile of human beings and of your creation, that you would cleanse and heal and restore and gather all back to yourself. And Father, you showed that through a sanctuary, first altars and then a tent tabernacle that moved with the sons of Israel. And deep in the recesses of it was your Shekinah glory, unapproachable, unseen, except by one man once a year. But always with the promise, even vouchsafed to David, that one day your house would take on an everlasting, all-comprehending glory. That you would sit a son of David on your throne forever and ever, and in him your kingdom would stretch from one end of the world to the other, and your glory would fill the earth. One day the whole creation would become your sanctuary. No need of a sun or a moon, for God Almighty would be its light, and the Lamb would be its lamp. Father, this is the great story that your scriptures tell, and I pray it's a, glory, a glorious story that fills our own hearts. And now as we even consider how you carried this story forward from David to Solomon and the great work that you called him to, and even though he himself understood this work and this idealized king and an idealized reign and an idealized house, he, he came to recognize by the end of his life that these things were not to be fulfilled in him, but they would yet come true because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would prove faithful. And I pray that that will encourage and comfort us too. There are things that discourage and cause us to despair, but we serve the enthroned image son the King of glory and of grace. So minister to us now 
instruct us, build us up, Father. May we be evermore made to shine with this glory that is in the face of Christ. Help us in this time. Cause it to be fruitful for our sake and for the sake of Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. This story of Solomon uh, is recorded for us both in Kings and in Chronicles. If you're familiar with Kings and Chronicles, they cover the same period of history, but from a little bit of a different perspective. And you see that certainly in terms of Solomon's story. Uh, Kings provides a more balanced treatment of both the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel once the divided kingdom comes. And so it's in the king's account in 1 Kings that you see Solomon presented more uh, in an even-handed way. You see his failings recorded, his weaknesses. The chronicles are told more from the standpoint of David's house and David's kingdom. And so they tend to uh, kind of put David's house and the Davidic kings in a I won't say surreal, but an unrealistic light. They, they don't, uh, the, the chronicler doesn't treat as much the failings and the weaknesses, uh, the low points of David's kingdom until it comes down to the end. So if you read in the king's account and you read in the chronicle's account of Solomon, you see that the failings of Solomon are omitted from the chronicle's account. What Chronicles focuses on is Solomon taking the throne of his father, David, and the commission from his father, David, uh, concerning this house in Jerusalem, according to the covenant that God made with him. So Solomon's whole life is viewed through the lens of the Davidic covenant and his own role in that that particular covenant and its work centered in the Jerusalem temple. So Chronicles paints a very glorious picture of Solomon without any of the downsides. You have to go to the king's account to see the ways in which he failed. But pulling those things together, we see that that same kind of up and down, in and out, promise, judgment, uh, uh, triumph, failure, that kind of inconsistency of of David's reign is also carried forward also in terms of Solomon himself. Solomon's reign arose out of the conflict in David's house. If you've been following the story in the scriptures, God brought a sword on David's house because of his failing to keep the covenant. And Solomon's reign came out of that conflict, out of the the working of God's sword. And yet he was Yahweh's chosen successor in whom God would advance his covenant promises to David. Recall Solomon was a son of Bathsheba, the son of David's adultery, the son of David's conspiracy, the son of David's sin. And so even that preeminent failing of David, if you will, or significant failing of David, was in God's hand the source of of Solomon and the, the advancing of the covenant and the kingdom. So Solomon was the starting point of the Lord's pledge to build David a house. David recognized that. He communicated that to Solomon. And Solomon was also the son of David chosen to build the Lord's house. So the text itself, both in Kings and Chronicles, treats the temple episode 
from the completing of the gathering of the materials to the building of the house to the climax in the sacrifices, in the priestly work of Solomon, in the intercessory uh, prayer that he offers, the benediction that he offers on behalf of of the nation. Uh, That's the high point. That's the focal point of Solomon's reign. But also the text, as I said, primarily in 1 Kings, uh, highlights how the glory of Solomon's accomplishments was overshadowed by his many failures. His reign, his life too, uh, was a study in contrast. As I say here, he was a man of supernatural wisdom. He pleaded for wisdom to govern God's people wisely. And God gave him a transcendent wisdom that everyone around him recognized. And yet he manifested incredible foolishness in many of the things that he did. He presided over Yahweh's kingdom as the Lord's appointed and uniquely endowed ruler. And yet he sought security and national well-being in human alliances. He married a daughter of Pharaoh to form an alliance with the Egyptians. He was Yahweh's beloved image son. God said, Solomon is my son. I love him. He was, in a sense, the quintessential image son, the the quintessential regal image son of God who would preside over his kingdom. And yet, for all of that uh, unique uh, beloved status that he had, Solomon gave his attention and affection to other gods. But as with his father, David, the true significance of his life and reign is found in his role in the salvation history. Not just what he personally did or didn't do, but the role that he plays in the story. As that story ultimately reaches its climax in Jesus himself. So Solomon then, I want to treat him under these two things, the positive and the negative. The builder of Yahweh's house and the terror down of Yahweh's house. He's presented as the preeminent prototype of the covenant son promised to David. And I've given you lots of references here, but hopefully you've already read these contexts and I'm not going to take the time to read them all now. Um, If you haven't read them, I hope that you will to see uh, the the truth and the, the significance of the things that I'm saying. But he is presented as the preeminent prototype of the Davidic son the son promised to David in the covenant. And the focal point of that correspondence is his work in building the temple. That's why it's the centerpiece of the time, the space that the text gives to him. So at the very outset, David highlighted that task for Solomon when he identified him as his successor. He didn't just say, you're going to be the king after me. And then later he said, oh, by the way, there's this temple thing. When he even identified to Solomon the fact that he was his successor, it's that he would take up the mantle of building the Lord's house. David had now spent many years gathering the materials for that work. And now he's handling, he's handing that mantle over to Solomon. So from the very outset, Solomon's mandate as the heir apparent to the throne was that he would build the house according to the covenant. He spent the first four years of his reign establishing his throne and completing the preparations that David had begun. And then when everything was in place, he started this colossal construction project on Mount Zion. Remember, David had purchased the threshing floor of Arana, which was to be the kind of focal point of that site where the temple would be built. 
And that building project with uh, hundreds of thousands of people involved in it, well, many, many, many tens of thousands at least, lasted for seven and a half years. And you can read in it all of the gold and, and the materials, the, the pressure, you know, the, the wood coming down from Lebanon and all the overlay and all of the, it was just a, an immense project. Something that was really unparalleled in the ancient world. But when it was finally all finished, then Solomon orchestrated and presided over a massive dedication celebration that lasted 14 days. That temple was unparalleled in Israel's history and really even in the ancient world. And it was a reflection of Solomon's own power and glory and wealth. It, it was, in a sense, kind of a symbol of his kingdom. But it was also very closely modeled after the tabernacle. Solomon wasn't doing his own thing. He was building a permanent house. So it followed the pattern, the model of the tabernacle. But if you read the account of it, the, the features of it, the components of it were what God had prescribed back to Moses, you know, when they built the first tabernacle, but greatly enlarged and much aggrandized. So I give you a couple examples here. The dimensions of the structure were preserved, the relative structure of the building, the holy place, the most holy place. The relative dimensions were the same, but much enlarged like looking at it through a magnifying glass. And the ark of the Lord's presence was still overshadowed by the mercy seat, the gold cover with the two cherubim with their wings extended towards the center. But now he built it so that it was so large that it said the wings extended from one side of the Holy of Holies to the other. It was the tabernacle, but the tabernacle on steroids. It was the tabernacle much enlarged, much aggrandized. So Solomon was showing in that way that he regarded the temple as the ultimate realization of what the tabernacle had signified and anticipated. He wasn't building some new sanctuary, but the earthly consummation of the previous sanctuary. It fulfilled the Davidic covenant's pledge of a permanent house for Yahweh, that would be the fullness in a permanent way of what the tabernacle had represented. It fulfilled the oath of a central sanctuary that God had given to Moses. And as I say, when everything was complete, Solomon declared to all Israel the significance with this glorious dedication that climaxed with his prayer of petition and blessing as Yahweh's elect son king. Now, the time this occurred was at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And if you recall from the law of Moses, all Israelites were required to go up to Jerusalem three times a year in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles. So all the people of Israel would have been in Jerusalem at that time. So they had the seven, they, they had the, the uh, dedication of the temple and for seven days, and then the seven days of the feast, which was woven into that large episode. So it was a 14-day celebration. Interestingly, the Feast of Tabernacles or of Booths was the obligation for the Israelites to live in tents or temporary structures for that week as a commemoration of the way the Lord provided for them in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. He moved them around and they were in temporary structures. But it also occurred in the fall after the fall harvest when God had given them a full provision 
for the winter in food. And so symbolically, it represented the fact that God was providing for his people. He would prove faithful. And even in the barrenness of the howling wilderness out of Egypt, he gave them shelter and provision and cared for them. And that was the setting in which this temple dedication took place. I'll let you think about that some. But none of this was arbitrary. So Solomon then, in echoing his father's actions, remember David had brought the ark up to Jerusalem and and had done so wearing the ephod, offering sacrifices as they went along. He was, in a sense, bringing Yahweh's presence up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem uh, as a king priest. You have Solomon doing the same thing. He's presiding over the ark's transfer from the tent where David had put it up to the new temple, the new residence on Mount Zion, also punctuating that move with sacrificial offerings. But the text says more than could be numbered, more offerings than could be numbered. Again, heightened from what David had done. And when the ark was installed in the Holy of Holies, you again have the Lord's Shekinah, his Shekinah glory descending and filling it, just as had happened at the end of Exodus when Moses completed the work of building the tabernacle. And then Solomon too offered a priestly benediction on behalf of the sons of Israel, just as David had. David had acted as an intercessor on behalf of Israel with a blessing upon them after the ark was brought up to Jerusalem. And now Solomon does the same thing, but in a much more lengthy, a much more engaged comprehensive sort of way. So beyond David's benediction, Solomon interceded for the people and the nations. That's an enlargement. David hadn't interceded for the nations, but for Israel. Solomon, as we read in uh, Solomon's prayer, he intercedes for the nations with a lengthy prayer. And if you look at Kings and Chronicles for all their differences in their accounts of Solomon in his life, almost word for word, this prayer is recorded the same, which tells you that they saw it as something not to be messed with or, you know, um, made more simple, you know, whatever, abridged or whatever, but it needed to be preserved as it had been spoken. It was significant to the episode. Ultimately, as that episode of the temple And Solomon's own actions contributes to the storyline, as I've said, that stretches from Eden to the new heavens and the new earth. Solomon's prayer of dedication is very important. And so to read it in in a very careful way and to extract from it what's there is important. He was speaking as the covenant son of David appointed to build Yahweh's house. And because that covenant advanced God's covenants and promises going all the way back to Eden, Solomon's prayer of dedication ultimately implicated God's determination and design to banish the curse and restore all things to himself in a son of David. That's what the Davidic covenant was ultimately promising. So he begins by addressing the temporal, the kind of now earthly natural aspects of God's covenant with his father. But Solomon also recognized that it transcended all things. Those things, certainly. The house he had built for Yahweh was only a material representation of his true dwelling place. If you go back to 2 Chronicles 6... And you look, think again about how Solomon expressed this. He said, will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Well, 
if we understand the scriptural story, the answer is, well, I certainly hope so, because that seems to be the purpose he's intended from the beginning. Will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. And he goes on in these petitions to say, hear from heaven. If your people call on you, hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place. And the Israelite conception was that God was enthroned in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of his feet. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. But God yet remained enthroned in heaven. It says in verse 21, it says, Listen to this supplication of your servant of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. So Solomon himself recognized that this temple wasn't ultimate. It was not ultimately fulfilling the idea of God dwelling on the earth. God's glory would be present in it. It would be a place of prayer and and encounter and worship. But God himself would not be localized in that sanctuary. As the covenant itself looked to a son beyond Solomon, Solomon understood that the sanctuary associated with the covenant transcended the temple he had built. In his own understanding, Yahweh's ultimate design for his house was that it should be a place of forgiveness, cleansing, and refuge for Israel and all the nations. Thus it symbolized and served the Lord's intent covenanted to Abraham that Israel by its faithful ministration of sonship should mediate his blessing to all the earth's families. And if you think again about in Isaiah's prophecy and and Micah capturing the same idea that Yahweh's house in the last days, the days of fulfillment will become the greatest Of all of the dwellings, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become the greatest of all the mountains. All the nations will stream to it. They will come and they will meet with Yahweh there. So reflecting the temple's universal relevance and Israel's role on behalf of the world, Solomon closed his prayer by blessing the people. And as I said, Solomon's intercession, if this happens, well, if you follow in the text, that is going to happen. If this happens, then hear, and your people return to you, and they call on you, hear, and restore, and forgive. And ultimately, if in their unfaithfulness you drive them away from this place and from this land, then if they call on you, bring them back, and hear, and forgive, and restore. Solomon closes then his prayer by blessing the people, reminding them that the Lord had chosen them for himself. And fulfilled his marvelous promises to them, evident in the unspeakable glory of the Israelite kingdom and its sanctuary now firmly established on Mount Zion. The temple, everything Solomon did was grand and glorious and over the top, but it was to bear witness of the fact that the God of Israel had proven faithful. He had fulfilled his promises to Abraham. He had made his kingdom the glory of all the earth in a very kind of narrow, concentrated way, this sanctuary, that its opulence, the amount of gold and wealth and everything that was incorporated into it, the sweat and blood of the sons of Israel and the nations, it was over the top. 
It served again the Lord's intent covenanted to Abraham of a ministration that would mediate his blessing to all the earth's family. And the, and the blessing at the end reflected that. Yahweh's has said this Hebrew idea that's often translated loving kindness. It means a faithfulness to a relationship founded in love. The covenant was a relationship of love of, of a father and sons, right? And so God's loving kindness is not just his, uh, you know, affable affection. Gee, I, I'm favorable towards you, or I kind of like you, and you kind of like me. This, this is a commitment to a relationship of love that is in this covenant. God will keep faith with Israel. That's what chesed is all about. Yahweh's chesed, his enduring commitment to, covenant, to the covenant relationship, had secured all of the blessings that Solomon was displaying to the people. And he held his Israelite brethren up to the Lord with the confident hope that he would continue to dwell in their midst. Despite their unfaithfulness, if this, if this, if this, and all those things are coming. Thus leading them to know, love, and serve him in all truth and sincerity. And in that way, then, they would fulfill their calling on behalf of the world. That's the way the prayer ends. So we have to read Solomon's prayer as taking into it Solomon's own awareness of all that God has pledged, his own central role in that as the son of David, and how ultimately God will accomplish what he's determined, not, not just for the people of Israel, but for the world and ultimately for the whole cosmos. Afterwards, Yahweh responded to Solomon's prayer in a second vision in which he reaffirmed his covenant with David, specifically as it involved the twofold promise of a house. This is the second vision that he has. The Lord said he would put his name forever in the house David's son built for him, and he would likewise build David's house as promised. And at the same time, he reiterated that that commitment was contingent upon the faithfulness of the Davidic kingship. His covenant with David depended on a truly faithful son for its fulfillment. And I'll let you read more through that. So Solomon then brings the kingdom to its apex of glory when he builds this house according to the covenant with David, but he also plays a role in dismantling it. If David was a dismantler of his own house, remember the house that Yahweh pledged to build, he said, I'm bringing a sword on your house. What does a sword do? It cuts and hacks and destroys. It, it, it lays waste. And what began with David now carries forward with Solomon. As his own building, as, his, as the glory of his throne, the glory of his kingdom, all of that transcended David, so also his failings, his tearing down of the house transcended David. David had taken another man's wife, but Solomon amassed multitudes of foreign wives and concubines who led him away from his God. You read this in 1 Kings 11. So that he began to even build altars, shrines of worship to the false gods of the nations. David fell prey to the abuse of power in some isolated incidences that the scripture records, but Solomon subjected multitudes of his own people to harsh labor in his service. This is what ultimately becomes the motivation in Jeroboam, uh, you know, as God 
takes the kingdom from Solomon. He lets, he leaves the kingdom with Solomon, but he tells Solomon, I'm taking 10 tribes. I'm tearing them away from you and giving them to your servant. Jeroboam was a servant. He was an Ephraimite. He was over the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Solomon had brought the, uh, the people of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, the tri those tribes into his subjugation, not as slaves, but as forced labor and treated them harshly. And when his son Rehoboam takes the throne, Jeroboam, on behalf of those, the Israelite tribes that have kind of Ephraim at the center of them, they go to Rehoboam and they say, your father made our lives hard. He subjected us to harsh servitude. Now, please turn from that course of action. And Rehoboam, under the counselor, counsel of his advisors, said, my father made it hard on you. I'm going to make it harder on you. You know, he, the, you were lashed. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. You think you had it rough, you, you, you men of Ephraim and Manasseh, you sons of Joseph. You think you had it rough. Under, under my father Solomon, I'm going to make it rougher. And so they say, what share do we have in David anymore? We have no share. And so that becomes in their own minds the motivation to split off and to follow Jeroboam as their king. Well, God had already ordained it was going to be that way and told Jeroboam that that was coming. But it's Solomon's harsh treatment of his own people that, that becomes the way in which that, that uh, transpires. So David had employed his own soldiers, his faithful men, to orchestrate Uriah's death. Solomon subjected multitudes of his own people to harsh labor in his service. And when Yahweh responded to Solomon's offenses by stripping him of ten tribes and giving them to Rehoboam, Solomon, rather than repenting, sought to kill Jeroboam. God told him, I'm giving these ten tribes to your servant, to Jeroboam. And Solomon said, okay, I'll kill him. That's how I'll deal with that. And Jeroboam had to flee. So Yahweh had decreed a sword against David's house, and Solomon's kingship was an effective instrument of that sword and its destructive work. Solomon, who was the Davidic king, characterized by singular wisdom and glory, and, the, and he was the chosen covenant son who built Yahweh's house and brought David's house to its pinnacle. That's the way the text presents him on his positive side. He would not fulfill the promise of the covenant. That idealized kingship that we read in Psalm 72. Go back and read Psalm 72 in the light of Solomon's life, and you see how far he fell short of that. He would not fulfill the promise of the covenant and its kingship. He would not be the one through whom Yahweh would establish an everlasting house, throne, and kingdom for David. That awaited another son, another priest king who would not fail as David and Solomon had. This is the way the story keeps moving along. We see more and more of what that kingship is to be in Solomon, but he falls short. So in conclusion then, David had established the kingdom promised to Abraham through military conquest and the devotion of the Israelite people. All Israel came to him because he won their hearts. But he extended his kingdom from the river to the Mediterranean Sea to the river of Egypt, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean to the Nile, just as God had promised to Abraham by bringing those nations in subjection to his own kingship. Solomon then presided over that kingdom you read in 1 Kings 4, it's even stated in the Abrahamic terms. 
Solomon ruled over that kingdom as a king distinguished by unnatural, supernatural wisdom in the context of unprecedented peace and unparalleled splendor. Remember the queen of Sheba coming to him. The, the news of the fame of his wisdom and the glory, the, the wealth. You know, silver is as common as, as stones on the ground, right? And she comes and she says, I heard of the glory of your kingdom, but I didn't know the half of it. It's far more. She was overwhelmed by what she saw. That was the uniqueness of his kingdom, such that its glories were lauded throughout the region, bringing great distinction to the God of Israel. It was the envy of the nation, Solomon's kingdom, his kingship. But that attention became a point of failure and culpability because Solomon, who had been earnest at the outset, in his desire to rule wisely and faithfully in Yahweh's name, showed himself ultimately to be just another human ruler who used his power and resource to his own advantage. So his abuses and his unfaithfulness whetted the Lord's sword and furthered his judgment against David's house. The sword raised against it was now going to cleave David's kingdom. David only saw his family torn apart Solomon's unfaithfulness has led to God's determination to tear the kingdom into two pieces. So as Solomon had failed to fulfill the sonship defined in the covenant with David, so it would be with the sanctuary he built. We've already considered that, and hopefully that's in your minds. That sanctuary would not fulfill Yahweh's promise of an enduring dwelling on the earth. That's why I wanted to read Zechariah 2 and explain how it even leads into 3, 4, and 5, and 6 of Zechariah. There would be a glory in this new temple, but it would not be what men would expect. It would not be in the building itself, but in the way in which God would return to that dwelling and gather in the nations. You can read that in Haggai, Malachi. Solomon's prayer showed that he understood God's intent for a sanctuary to which all mankind would come and encounter and worship him. But what Solomon couldn't know was that neither his temple that he had just built or the one that would later replace it, the one that was taking place at the time of Zechariah, that second temple, neither of those would fulfill that role. No, Yahweh would build his own house. He would do it in and upon the son of David, such that the glory that filled that house, the ultimate house he had promised to David, the glory of that house would be his glory manifested in his image children. And I'd just like to conclude then by looking uh, at, at this quick passage from John and then what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he talks about the glory that has come in this renewal of the covenant. But as we all hopefully know, John's gospel very much focuses on this sanctuary temple dwelling of God idea. And the fact that that intent of God to come and, and inhabit a, a realm to, to take up his dwelling in the earth is fulfilled in Jesus himself. So in the preamble to John's gospel, in a very familiar passage, he says in verse 14 of John 1, the word that was with God and was God, the logos of God, the, the, the revealed disclosure of the mind and the will, the intent of God, that word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. 
and we have beheld his glory. Where was the glory of God? It was in the temple. The glory of God had departed when the, when the first temple was destroyed. And when they built the second temple, the, the Shekinah, the glory of God never returned. The glory that was over the wings of the cherubim, that kind of luminescent, radiant glory presence of God, it never returned. The promise of God was that it will return. I will return someday. Well, that's what John is getting at. That when the word became flesh, now the glory of God has returned to be present in the world in a new sort of sanctuary, a glory that is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is John the Baptist's testimony, the forerunner who prepares the way for Yahweh's return to his dwelling place. Of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, the Torah, Israel's law, which, which had God in the midst of the people in his tabernacle was through Moses. Grace and truth have now been realized in full through Jesus the Messiah. No man, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, the one in the bosom of the Father, he has interpreted him. He has explained him. He has made him known. He is the one in whom the glory of God in the midst of the world has become present and yes and amen and then finally uh, in second corinthians 3 as paul is talking about the superior glory the superior significance of this covenant this new covenant that is the renewal of god's covenant intention the establishing of the final uh, covenant that he has been purposing all along He talks about the superior uh, quality of it, how the first covenant came with a glory, but it was a, this covenant associated with Moses, a glory even in Moses' face, but it was a declining glory. It was a ministry of condemnation. It could not accomplish the ultimate end that God had intended. But in verse 12, then he says, having therefore such a hope, a hope tied to what? That which faded away was with much glory. The glory that God had revealed to Israel in connection with uh, you know, the Torah and the temple, the sanctuary, the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies, much more that which remains is in glory. And having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Their minds were hardened until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the reading of Torah, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he's saying when Moses came away from the encounter with God, the glory of God was radiant in his face, but it was a fading glory. It wasn't an ultimate thing. It was even veiled from the sons of Israel. 
But now what has come in the Messiah and in the fulfillment of God's covenant promises is a glory, the glory of God that is in the face of Christ himself. And we all as sharers in him, as image children in him, the image son, see that glory reflected in our own faces and in an ascending way, not in a declining way, in an ascending way. As we, by the Spirit, are being transformed into the same likeness of the image Son who is the glory of God, we are being transformed into that same likeness from glory to glory. And so God's promise of a house where his glory will dwell forever is the promise of a renewed human race that would become image children bearing his glory throughout the world. The promise of a sanctuary was the promise of a new creation, human community, and ultimately the summing up of everything in the Messiah. This is the story that the scriptures are telling. That's the story. Far more than how can we go to heaven when we die? How can my sins get forgiven? It's the story of a God's intent to be all in all. And the beginning of that renewal, that making of a new sanctuary, is in the resurrection of the Messiah. It's really in the incarnation, but in the resurrection we see that glory fully realized consummately. And we become sharers in that glorious resurrection life in him. That's the way in which we manifest the glory. You know, when Solomon prayed, may the nations come and see your glory in this house. How did the nations come and see the glory of God in his house? It's in his church, right? Well, let me close in prayer and then we'll conclude with this last song, which hopefully I've maybe captured our vision a little bit, but our last song is going to be, Be Thou My Vision. So let's, let's close then in prayer. Father, I know there's a lot here to chew on. And again, I, my, my burden for everyone here is that we will be true disciples, that we will be truly Berean in our discipleship, that we will be a people who steep ourselves in your scriptures, a people who are constantly immersed in this story and finding its threads and its themes and, and the way in which you have so marvelously weaved it together into a three-dimensional tapestry that finds its ultimate embodiment in the person of Jesus the Messiah. He is the one to whom all the scriptures testify. And even as we find ourselves in him, we find ourselves as embodying in ourselves the truth of the scriptures. We embody in ourselves the gospel, the good news that the scriptures proclaim. For if they promise that one day your human creature would become what you created it to be, that, the, that you would form a human family of image children that would be all that you intend them to be, a family of people that would actually be what Psalm 72 idealizes as the ideal king. For we are priests and kings to our God, ordained to execute your rule over the works of your hands, to manifest your glory in the world. That's what Paul means when he says, those he justified, he glorified. 
we are already sharers in that glory because we are those who bear the glory of our God in the face of Christ. We are the dwelling of God in the spirit, the place where your glory is found. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with these things and that as we read the scriptural story, we will see and we will follow it through with with an understanding of where this is ultimately going. That we would understand what what Jesus meant when he comes into the world and he he faults and he he, uh, indicts his generation because they don't know the scriptures. If they knew the scriptures, they would know him. They would recognize him. And they would turn their hearts back to the fathers who waited and who expected. As Jesus himself said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. How much more, Father, ought we to be those who see your glory in the face of Christ? But I pray that you would make us people who are zealous to grow up in all things into Jesus our Lord. Not a people who simply say, well, I'm forgiven, and when I die, it's going to be all right, so I'll just get on with my life. I pray that you would cause us to be an authentic people, a people who are living out and living into the truth that we embody this good news that we proclaim. We are the beginning, the first fruits of this new creation as those who are built in Christ, the last Adam. As we sing this song, I pray that you would cause the lyrics and and the melody to sit on our hearts and our minds in a way uh, that is compelling, that fills us with joy and fills us with a great sense of unction to be a faithful people. You have entrusted us with much and of much and of whom much is given, much is required. May we prove faithful with this infinite calling. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.